everyone and welcome to the History Hotline, the hottest line for all things black history and beyond. Mr Howe, if I can just ask you, you are not a stranger to riots yourself, I understand, are you? You have taken part in them yourself. I'm not a... I have never taken part in a single riot. I've been on demonstrations that ended up in a conflict and have some respect for an old West Indian Negro and stop accusing me of being a rioter. Because I, you won't tickle me to get abusive. You just sound idiotic. Have Do some respect. Douglas Howe. grandchildren. Thank you very much for joining us from Croydon. Douglas Howe, their writer and broadcaster. Hello everyone, welcome to episode 73 of the History Hotline. My name is Deanna Lynn Cook and I, as always, will be your host today. If you hadn't already realised, today's episode is about a fantastic man. One of my heroes, um, especially when it comes to fighting for the rights of black people in Britain and against the injustices of the state. The one and only Mr Darkus Howe. Now, that clip that I shared, I just feel like, epitomizes his personality his oratory his eloquence the way he carried himself um in the media and you know in regards to fighting for the rights of black people not just in britain actually globally as well um and that clip was just it just the pinnacle because the way he was antagonized by the media the press um and people in society and his response at the face of that throughout his life you know from his arrival all the way until he unfortunately passed away in 2017 that is the way he carried himself and that clip for me just epitomized it and it just had to be shared it also is one of my favorite moments of all time because as much as I, you know, have a lot to say about the London Metropolitan Police and nothing's changed in this episode, we'll be back with them. But the BBC, following last week and their nonsense with the minstrel show, if you've not listened to last week's episode, tune in. But this was a moment where the BBC really tried him, you know, they tried to accuse him on live telly, on BBC One, of, you know, being part of a riot in the past and so excusing the riots in 2011 and kind of suggesting that people were right to be rioting on like the BBC one channel um you know in primetime news time um later on the BBC had to apologize and rightly so because if they if they had only known the true outcome of the Mangrove 9 case which you all do because you've all listened to episode one and two um they would have understood that you know he was never charged with um sorry he was charged but he was found innocent of quote-unquote, inciting a riot and a fray um, because the prosecution were biased and showed signs, as the judge said, of racial um, racial prejudice. The Metropolitan Police were described to have been doing that by the judge. Um, and not to get bogged down with that case before we get into it because we're going to get into it because whilst we have done an episode on the Mangrove Nine, um, Darkest House role in that was instrumental it was monumental um and his life was just incredible now we can't speak about everything that he achieved in his life because this podcast would take me seven days but please don't feel hard done by if there is a moment in his life that isn't kind of captured in this episode 
I can't speak about it all. Um, I will be going through the kind of uh, a highlight reel, I suppose, um, of the main events and using some clips to help me out along the way, just to narrate um, some of the moments. And I think with Darkest Howe, um, his his speech, you know, his oratory, his and I hate to use the word eloquence, but he he had some interviews and was faced with some questions by the press that I think anyone else would have either cracked, crumbled or just gotten really angry because they are such pointed and accusatory questions. And he regularly faced questioning like that um, at the hands of the police as well. Um, And so for me, the fact that he manages to keep his cool so often and we'll get into some of those interviews and some of those moments, but just really speaks to his character. Um, And he never rose to the level of those that were antagonising him, I feel. He was very level-headed and he knew the message he wanted to put out. And despite what people were asking him or accusing him of, he was going to get that message out. And that BBC clip just epitomised that for me. So I had to share it right at the start. Um, And, you know, if you're ever having a bad day, just go and watch that interview. Um, Just dark as how BBC interview. It will make your day because... It's just, oh, the way he just holds himself. Ah, I love it. Anyway, I have a lot of love for Dark as Hell. Um, You will be able to tell by the end of this episode. And this is an episode I've wanted to do for the longest time. So, I mean, it feels like an honour to be speaking about him um, and his life and all he achieved. So... Dark as Hell, born Leighton Rhett Radford Howe. Darkus was a nickname that caught on, was born on the 26th of February 1943 on the island of Trinidad in a place called Maruga. He arrived on the SS Antilles at Southampton Docks on the 11th of April 1961, got the train to London Waterloo Station with the intention of studying law, which he did. Um, However, after two years, he left the Middle Temple um, because he wanted to become more involved in journalism. He arrived in Britain as an 18-year-old, so as a student ready to study the law and become a barrister. In 1969, he actually returned to Trinidad, where CLR James, who, you know, I've spoken about him before, the literary genius and writer, who actually happens to be Darkest House uncle um, and mentor, inspired him to combine his writing with his political activism, um, and he worked in Trinidad um, for a weekly newspaper as an assistant editor on a paper called The Vanguard, which was um, the newspaper of the Oil Fields Workers Trade Union. So he was becoming involved politically in trade unions um, and the kind of journalism and writing that was involved with that. So very political um, and very much on an, a level of activism um, on a platform, you know, of the working class and working people and looking at their rights in Trinidad. Shortly after, he migrates back to Britain. Um, And at this point, you know, he's of working age um, and like other Caribbean men at the time and newly arrived uh, immigrants, he struggled to find professional well-paid work despite being so well-educated and qualified. You know, this man has studied the law He's got a background in journalism and like the experience to back it up, um, but struggled to find work just like many other um, men and women at the time because of racism and this kind of superiority that British people felt they had because 
qualifications gained overseas were deemed as like not good enough or not at the standard when in actuality those countries were still colonized by Britain and so were still under British kind of forms of education and, and higher education and were following the same exact teaching that British people in Britain would have been having but you know we've talked about that before on episodes and it's a problem but it was an issue faced by many. Now he lived in Notting Hill initially where we've we've spoken about the Notting Hill riots um, and carnival of course. In that part of London there was a very large West Indian presence, there was also a large white working class community um, and these communities in some ways mixed well, in other ways did not at all. Uh, there were clashes, racial tension at the time was really high um, and it was kind of during this time um, that he worked as a journalist for Hustler, which was a paper published for West Indian residents in the area. Um, so he continued his writing and he continued on with his journalism and that was something he did throughout his whole life, journalism and writing um, and later on broadcasting. Darkus was inspired by the likes of Malcolm X, who he met in 1965, and also Kwame Ture, um, also known as Stokely Carmichael, um, who he met in 1968, and of course his um, uncle and mentor C.L.R. James. Um, he believed and he advocated for black working class people and believed that they would be the agent of change. Um, and that was kind of similar politics and a political line that his uncle had um and so he kind of was inspired clearly um, in his work by that. Um, and so his activism and his journalism took place all around the world. Um, and it was used to garner support for black power movements um, and for the working classes. Um, and then we kind of fast forward to 1970. Now, ooh, we know what happened in 1970. The Mangrove Nine um, trial situation all went down in West London. He was arrested on charges of incitement to riot and affray. I would say if you're here right now and you're at this moment and you're thinking what who are the mangrove nine? What's the mangrove? Go back to episode one and two and have a listen. An in-depth analysis of the mangrove situation that took place in the early 1970s. Um, it was a restaurant in the mangrove owned by a man called Frank Critchlow. Um, who was also a fellow Trinidadian, and they were subject to harassment and repeated police raids, looking for drugs, looking for illegal activity. They never found anything ever, yet they continued on. Over six months, they were raided, you know, multiple times um, to the point where they would struggle to do business because raids were happening so frequently. Um, a protest was organised um, in part by... The Black Panther movement, of which Dark as Hell was a part of, um, and they, you know, wanted to to do a peaceful demonstration on behalf of the Mangrove Restaurant to stand up for the restaurant, for Frank, for his family, for the community, and for everyone that was facing this harassment and brutality at the hands of the police. Um, and so, you know, the protest turned violent, and the question was. Um, well, who caused it? Was it the police or was it the peaceful black protesters? And then, you know, who is responsible and who would be going to prison for this? Now, this is where we kind of 
rewind back to that clip at the start where I assumed the BBC reporter was alluding to this moment when she said, you're no stranger to riots, Mr. Hell. Um, you know, when that was exactly the opposite of what had happened. They did not go out there to riot. It was a peaceful protest um, that turned a bit sour, to be honest. Um, and in the trial of this case, dark as how he just he showed up and he showed out to be very honest with you he was acquitted like most of the others of the serious charges um and the trial became the first judicial acknowledgement of racial hatred on the side of the metropolitan police now it was in this trial where dark as how represented himself following the kind of influence of the american black panther party who would do things like this in trials it was a show trial, you know, he performed, he has his legal knowledge, he trained, as we said, at the start of his um, life in Britain, as an 18-year-old, um, he knows the law really, really well, and he's able to defend himself, and also really draw the jury and spectators' attention to the, the, the falsehoods that the police and the prosecution were trying to push, and I'm going to share a clip of kind of one of the ways he did that in the trial, which was just brilliant, genius. Where did you see all of this? We were in an observation van. I said, bring the observation van. The lawyer said, Darkus, please, exhibits are two edged sword. I said, I have nothing to lose, bring the van. So they bring the van, and there were these slits at the back. There are four policemen seeing the same thing, seeing the same thing from the same slit. So I measured it quietly while the judge and they were wrong beside and went home, cut out a piece of paper, full scap, the size of the slit, recalled the witness, and said, tell me how four of you could see the same thing at the same time through that slit. He said, my eye was here, Reed's eye was here, Roger's eye was here, and the next eye was here. So it was your face. And that is what eventually broke the spirit of the prosecution. Darkest absolutely by defending himself, was the star of the show out of the nine defendants. And uh, with, you know, with Shakespeare quotations and all sorts of things, he stood up in the dock and was extremely impressive. Aquas was a, a fearless warrior um, in the struggle against racial injustice in this country. People talking about um, um, civil rights movement. There was no civil rights movement in this country. There, have been a, there were anti-racist struggles were being waged, and Aquas was at the heart of that. He was at the centre of it. So there we have it. That was Farouk Dondi um, and Linton Kwesi Johnson speaking after Darkus Howe, who were also members of the Black Panther movement and also, um, you know, friends and allies and worked with Darkus Howe throughout his, his life and his um, career. Uh, Farouk Dondi um, was a commissioning editor on Channel 4 and commissioned one of his shows later on in the 1980s and 90s, um, worked in broadcasting. Obviously, Linton Kwesi Johnson is a poet um and we've we've spoken about his poetry before i can't remember on what episode but i definitely have i think it was no it's lost i've lost it um but anyway thinking about darker then in this moment and and bringing up this idea that four policemen could not have seen the same thing outside of the inside of the van through the tiny slits that darkest you know recreated and showed to the jury and absolutely made the police look like idiots, let's be honest, um, you know, he says, so if you all had your eye up to that little slit, where was your face? Um, absolutely ridiculous, but 
he played them at their own game really um and he used his ability to speak to speak eloquently to draw in that audience and to you know pretend essentially that he was performing like Shakespeare was performing a sonnet or you know a play he really got into role into character and sold that story the truth um and made them look ridiculous in the process which was absolutely genius another thing I wanted to bring up about the mangrove nine and that situation was the fact that a lot of the um, people that were arrested um in this trial would have been part of surveillance um, that was happening under this like special branch desk where you know leaders of this quote-unquote black power movement were being watched and monitored and it seemed to be the case that they were being watched and they were wait people were waiting and by people I mean the police um or and the home office were waiting for them to kind of even put a toe out of line by way of protest or by way of speaking out of turn so that they could kind of clamp down on them. They were being watched, they were under surveillance and this moment shows that because the fact that these individuals were picked up and they were all quite prominent within um, these movements at the time. But then following the trial, for me it seems like Darkus, by representing himself and taking on this kind of role of really trying to make the... um, police look stupid as well as proving his innocence and the innocence of the others he maybe puts a target on his back he becomes a center in some ways as Lyndon Quezzy Johnson said of movements for equality in Britain and that is a huge target especially in the 1970s at that time and you know he's a journalist he's a writer he eventually gets into broadcasting Um, but I often wonder the kind of pressure he might have been under having done things like that in his lifetime and having been so vocal and so relentless in his quest for justice and how he spoke about that. He did not mince his words. He did not sugarcoat things. And we're going to play a clip now um, that thinks a little bit more about his work as a journalist and writing for Race Today as an editor there. And some of the times he was asked questions to kind of explain situations that were happening in the black community, who he really did have the trust of and belief of as a leader at that time. Mr Howe, as the editor of a magazine called Race Today, you have recently published a document in which you say, we are uncompromisingly against mugging. We see the mugging activity as a manifestation of powerlessness, a consequence of being without a wage. Could you tell me what you mean by that? Well, firstly, the statement is in response to what has been paraded in the press and by Scotland Yard on the question of the increase in crime among unemployed youth. The young people have begun the rebellion, refusing to work. They have received very little support from other sections of the population, as a consequence of which they must find money by these means. We say we are against those means, not because we are moralists, not because we are religious freaks, but precisely because mugging involves loss of life and liberty and a continuing attack upon that section of the black community, police brutality, prison brutality, a whole wastage of human creativity. That is why we were against it. So this interview here speaks to two things. Um, One of them is the fact that, as we've mentioned, Dark editor of Race Today, 
Um, and this journalist is asking him these questions, you know, about muggings that are happening. Um, and black young black people are being arrested for it. But instead of taking that moment where he's asked about muggings and asked about the statement Race Today have put out, you know, saying, you know, this is wrong, you should not be mugging people. He doesn't just, like, throw in black people, throw them under the bus and say, you know, they're thieving, they're doing this, they're doing that. He uses it as an opportunity to go deeper and say, well, why is that happening? And in turn, actually speaks on the institutional racism and the discrimination that these young people are facing that means that they are turning to this and not excusing their behaviour, but simply highlighting the systemic issues within society that leads to this because at the end of the day poverty breeds crime black people white people any color you know there's been instances of this you can take nearly any country in the world that has areas of extreme poverty crime levels are high because people have nothing to lose people have they have no money they need to find a way to survive um and that was though different to the case in parts of london at this time where black people, black children, who had faced disadvantages in the education system, then in the workplace, finding jobs um, and jobs that were suitable for their skill set and also what they wanted to do. Um, you know, Darkus is actually illuminating all of these struggles and just so cleverly, because by the time you listen to that art um, extract and that question, by the time I get to the end of it, I even forget the question the journalist posed and the kind of ridiculous nature of it to condemn muggings because who's going to really stand up and say yep muggings are great we should all do muggings well no by the time he gets to the end of that you think all I was thinking about was the failings of the British system (laughs) I wasn't thinking about muggings anymore Um, and I think that just speaks to his oratory the way he speaks the way he carried himself the way he was under pressure um, faced with questions like this um, and also his his journalistic flair and, and what Race Today as a publication was doing in regards to the black community and the situation that they were faced with and some of the systemic issues that they were having to deal with at that time. Under Darkus Howe, um, as editor of Race Today, he was editor from 1973 to 1988. Um, it was originally linked with the Institute of Race Relations, publishing more academic articles but Darkus Howe, under his leadership, turned it into a more of a radical black um, publication. Its headquarters moved to Brixton with the help of Olive Morris, actually, um, and other then ex-Black Panthers um, who became contributors to this magazine and this publication. Um, and he stayed in the role till 1985. And then he began to write a column. He became a columnist for the Evening Standard in the 1990s and also for over a decade wrote for The New Statesman. So, you know, these journalistic skills he learned all the way back in Trinidad, writing for this trade union, carry him through throughout his career to the 2000s, to the early 2000s. Um, And, you know, this also coincides with his work in broadcasting, um, which is happening from the 80s onwards. In the 80s, um, he launched his broadcasting career working on Channel 4, regularly speaking on TV and radio. Um, His first TV series was The Badung File, um, from 1985 to 1991, and that was commissioned, as I said, by Farouk Dandi, who was a fellow member of the Black Panther movement um, earlier on. And I think at this point, uh, Darkus Howe becomes even more vocal um, and even more called upon as a speaker, and not necessarily as a representation of the whole of the black community, um, but he was 
a great commentator on issues that were impacting black people and issues of race, racism and race, racial tension in Britain. Howe was in demand as a commentator on issues of race and identity, whether discussing symbols of Britishness. I love England. I like being here. I like living here, but I'm not a patriot. You could like the country. I love the countryside. I get okay. along beautifully with English people. We are part of uh, a, okay. a space, but I am, I am not patriot. Darkest Howe was often called upon um, to speak on issues that were happening and he clashed with so many people um, in broadcasting in terms of like on the air, on radio and TV, um, speaking about about racial issues and, and things of that nature because he just wouldn't budge, he's relentless, he knows what he believes um, and has evidence to back it up and you know is not going to be bullied into any kind of position by anybody. Um, you know, BBC presenter or otherwise. And I think that was one of the incredible qualities about Darkus Howe um, as, as a speaker. Um, he remained this way, radical, outspoken. And in 2011, following the London riots, um, although he might call them insurrections of the people as opposed to riots, um, you know, he really spoke out about what was happening. And Instead of getting bogged down with this idea of always oh, writing wrong or right, which is exactly what the media did after 2020 and the Black Lives Matter protests. Oh, is it right or wrong to pull down statues? This conversation isn't about statues. This conversation isn't about whether riots are right or wrong. It's about the reason that we are in this position, which is racism, systemic and otherwise. And I find the media do that all the time when it comes to issues of race. Like, say, for example, there's a problem that causes protesting, it causes demonstrations, then at those demonstrations, something happens that's unsavoury. We now think about the unsavoury moment rather than looking back and thinking, well, why did we have these turn of events to get to that unsavoury moment in the first place? This is exactly what happened, and Darkus Howe, every single time, calls it out. He doesn't fall into their traps of having to condemn mugging or condemn rioting or if he was alive in 2020 probably have to condemn pulling down statues he gets back to the root issue and he kept I think the focus on the important things and I really really appreciate that from him and I'm going to share a clip from 2011 from the interview that we started with um, where he kind of goes into the actual issue Mark Duggan's murder um, and you know what that meant and why that shouldn't be glossed over. You're not, you say you're not shocked. Does this mean that you condone what happened in your community last night? I condone, if I, of course not. What I'm going to condone it for, what I am not, what I'm concerned about more than anything else, there is a young man called Mark Duggan. He has parents, he has brothers, he has sisters. And few yards away from he where he lives, a police officer blew his head off. Well, Mr. Howe, we have to. Off with a, let me finish. Mr. Howe, we have to. We have to wait and for I the official inquiry before we can say things like that. We don't know what happened to Mr. Duggan. We are going to wait for the police report on it. I, if I can take I, I, you I on a little bit, uh, you were Mr. talking Duggan about your grandson. Dead. You were talking about you young people. And he said it so well, Mr. Duggan is dead. You don't have to wait for an inquiry. He said, let me finish. Oh, he just, the energy he came with to, to broadcasting, to interviews, to speaking, to writing is just so admirable.
Um, and even in his his latter days, he passed away in 2017. He had prostate cancer, which was diagnosed in 2007. Um, so he had lived with that the last 10 years of his life. Um, you know, even during his illness, he took the opportunity to work with the NHS and Channel 4. He did a documentary um, over six months to urge black men to have checkups as they were three times more likely to suffer from it than their white counterparts even in his sickness and you know eventually as he passed away the political gravity of the situation in in regards to it being something that black men were more impacted by in terms of dying disproportionately um he even spoke up about that you know even in his sickness um he died peacefully in his home in streatham south london um, survived by his wife Layla. He had three sons and four daughters. Um, and he will be remembered, I hope, as an outstanding activist, a journalist, a broadcaster, but more importantly, one of the most powerful voices for black rights in Britain. And one of the most powerful voices I think this country has seen. Um, always articulate, dominant, speaking with such pride um, and relentless in his quest for justice through a variety of means, a fearless campaigner consistently fighting the injustices of Britain and colonisation in other countries as well. There's so many more things I could have spoken about. His impact into Notting Hill Carnival, he was on the commissioning board. He had a steel band that played there, the Renegades. You know, so many other TV shows that he was a part of other um, publications that he edited and wrote for. You know, there's so much to say about this man, but if you take anything from it, I think his spirit for justice, for activism, for doing what was right and for not accepting the beating that institutional racism and this British state could do to you as a black man in this country at that time, He's an inspiration, truly, truly a great one. Um, and may his memory and his legacy go on for a very, very long time. That is all I have on Dark as How, but I'm going to leave you with a clip, um, a fantastic clip of him speaking about Tiger Woods. It's very, it's not relevant in many ways, but, you know, anyone could get it from Dark as How, I think. It didn't matter. You know, he was on a quest for the right, for rights and for truth. So if you weren't with that, you could get it. Um, so I'll leave you with that clip. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week. Goodbye. Utterly unbiddable, his own man, dark as hell wouldn't let anyone off the hook, no matter how celebrated. We read the nation's headline, Tiger Woods, I am not black. Just as we were coming to grips with our new hero. Hang in there, brother. to the history hotline if you've enjoyed this episode please tell a friend to tell a friend to continue the conversation about black history head over to our social media platforms at the history hotline on instagram and at the history hl on twitter